the Times doesn't um, want to judge journalism purely on what the audience says, because there are things that are important to do for all sorts of reasons as a journalist. But of course, we're all listening to what the audience says, because that's the currency today. I mean, that's the whole idea of this conversation that is enabled by technology. That's Catherine Rossman. She's a features editor at The New York Times. I'm your host, Patrick McGinnis, and this is FOMO Sapiens, part of the HBR Presents Network. My name is Patrick McGinnis, and I'm the guy who invented the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out. Today, FOMO is an epidemic, and it's changing us so much that it sort of feels like we're evolving into a new species. But FOMO doesn't have to take over your life. You can find the power to choose what you actually want and the courage to miss out on the rest. I'll show you how right here on FOMO Sapiens. FOMO. 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 Every day since the start of the 2016 American presidential election has felt like it was full of news. That has made it hard to look away, and in fact, consumption of news on both cable television and smartphones grew by nearly 50% in 2016 alone. Now more than ever, when you spend time away from your devices, you feel at risk of missing out on that next story or tweet that will throw the world into a frenzy of retweets, impassioned responses, or stunned disbelief. And this anxiety is causing an entirely new type of FOMO, fear of missing out on the news. It's just a lot. Our guest today works inside of that world, and she has learned how to find stories that can break out of the pack in a saturated media environment. She's also working on a side project to help people to consume news more thoughtfully. Katie Rossman is a features reporter at The New York Times, where she covers media, social media, and celebrity, and the ways in which they intersect and collide. She's reported on litigation surrounding a crochet bikini, the dark side of sugar dating, and the commercialization of celebrity parties. She started her career at Elle and later joined the Wall Street Journal, and she is the author of the memoir, If You Knew Susie, published by HarperCollins. She lives in New York City with her husband and two children. Welcome to FOMO Sapiens, Katie Rossman. Thank you for having me. Just to just to get started, what time did you get up this morning? Funny you should ask. I got up this morning at 3 a.m. Wow. Yeah. It's that like afternoon insane. for me right now. That You know what? That's like 17 hours before I did. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't write very well during the day. I just find it very distracting and... It is distracting, and I'm sort of pulled in all sorts of directions. And so when I'm on deadline, which I am now, I will wake up at 3 or 4 in the morning to get, you know, two to three solid hours of writing before my kids wake up and I have to get them off to school. Impressive. Okay, so that I think you might have already answered this question, but I'm going <laughs> to ask you the question I ask everybody at the beginning of the show. Everybody feels a little FOMO sometimes. What turns you into a FOMO sapiens? Well... I get FOMO with stories a lot. I get nervous all the way to panicked when I'm deciding if I'm going to do a story or not. If my news judgment tells me it's not a story, then I don't care if I don't do it and somebody else does. But a lot of times I choose not to do stories because I just have a queue of other stories and you have to say no sometime even to things that you think would be good and things that you think you would be good at. Um, and it it fills me with FOMO. And it makes sense because you, you your kind of beat is really the intersection of popular culture, celebrity, technology, 
and and a mashup of all those things in between. And mm-hmm. what I when I as I read your byline a lot, and I checked out your 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 writing over the years, what I've noticed is you always seems to be <laughs> you always seem to be right on the zeitgeist of the moment, or at least. It seems so at the moment. Maybe then, you know, two months later, the story kind of disappears. But you really are on top of that. How do you get these stories? How do you find these ideas? Well, if I'm doing it well, then I'm grateful. It's luck often. But you, as you sort of have experience as a human being and as a journalist, you get a sense more of of what matters and what really catches you and what seems more like, am I going to care about this tomorrow? Uh, no, I'm not going to. Or, you know what, I think this is reflective of something larger. And when a story is sort of fun and buzzy and you can make the argument in your head and hopefully on the page that it's reflective of something larger, that's where the legs come from and that's where the zeitgeist comes from. And so you put a story out on the web, and I, I go to the New York Times. Every, I'm a subscriber. Um, Good. And he, all everybody should consider, and along with HBR, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and I look at that sort of trending article section, and I see what the hot articles are for the weekend. And you're in there all the time. And I wonder to myself, like, is Katie is Katie like sitting by her computer, like refreshing to see how many clicks <laughs> she got? Do they tell? Are you able to monitor in real time if your article is trending and and see how it's doing? And and does that matter in terms of like your success within a place like the New York Times? When you have a story that doesn't do that well, people tell you that, don't worry, we don't care that much about page views. But they do care about page views. I care about page views because it means that my story has found an audience and you can measure it. I mean, maybe it's incredibly well read in print and I just don't know that. And hopefully my stories are read in print. But really, the digital platforms is where it's at, where your relevance is being decided. And so I don't think that I would be fired if I had all stories with low page views, though that might mean that I really don't have my finger on something. You, know, it can connect to something. The Times doesn't um, want to judge journalism purely on what the audience says, because there are things that are important to do for all sorts of reasons as a journalist. But of course, we're all listening to what the audience says because that's the currency. So I really just go with with my gut and my news judgment and. It served me. It has served me pretty well so far. Um, but you have no idea how your story is going to do because it's competing in a media landscape that you cannot predict. Because you can sort of time and think about, well, Thursday afternoon would be good for a story like this, and then the president tweets something, or there's a horrible fire in Paris, uh, you know, the cathedral. I, you just cannot. Um, guess what is going to happen in the world of breaking news and your story can just vanish. And it's sort of hard. You can you can try to get some sort of energy behind it later after the news has passed and maybe you'll get on the homepage a couple days later. But really, I feel like that moment that you publish um, and in the next couple hours, if 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 it goes nowhere because of other news events, you're going to have a hard time breaking through. So I read, uh, reread a couple of your articles in preparation for this interview, and mm-hmm. there was there were a few that kind of I wanted to dig into because they okay. really are at the intersection of 
I would say commerce, and a lot of our listeners are in the business world, and then this world of, of celebrity and pop culture. And one of the ones that I read was was about the Snap Pack, which is this group of young New Yorkers who basically are on their phones the whole time, and they all are entrepreneurs and come from wealthy families. And, <laughs> and, and the article follows them around on a night in New York City from like a Dolce & Gabbana store down to this restaurant called Vandal, which was hot for about 72 minutes, uh-huh. you know, four years ago. Mm-hmm. And you, you profile these people, and they seem to be completely unaware of the fact that they'll come out pretty ridiculously in the article. And I just imagine you like following them around with a notebook. So how did you, how did that story kind of evolve? And, and what was, I guess, what are we supposed to take away for something like that? That story was very popular. It was a little bit of what is called a hate read. You know, people <laughs> read it and just couldn't believe how much they disliked the characters in it and that they couldn't sort of stop reading it um you need to you need to do those stories very carefully because you don't want to be mean-spirited no but you sort of have to just let the reporting speak for itself so (laughs) we try to avoid you know you try to avoid low-hanging fruit so basically that story there was this guy um who uh andrew warren yes who showed up in a like a little gossip column somewhere. And my editor at the time ripped it out of, I think, a magazine actually on paper and said, find a story, find do a story about him. And um, I hung out with he and his friends and we went, um, you're right, we went to a store opening and I just, I just wrote everything I read everything very carefully down. when I yes, read your articles. <laughs> thank you. I'm so glad. So I do. I just follow I follow them around um, with a with a notebook and, you know, introduce myself to people. We interact as a New York Times reporter so people know. And they just what what really struck me was that they did nothing but take pictures mm-hmm. and then filter the pictures and that there was no everything that the only interaction that wasn't them looking at their phones was based on like finding the right backdrop for a picture and listen I'm on my phone all the time we all are I'm not some Luddite but this was (laughs) really the social activity the the main the main draw the main act was getting good pictures for Snapchat and Instagram and then talking about what filter you're going to do and drinking so I wrote everything down and asked a lot of questions and took pictures of them for them um and then I was in a yoga class. So I always tell people this, that um, especially students, when I talk about writing, that, you know, what writing sometimes happens at the computer. But what happens at the computer sometimes is just sort of putting the thoughts that you've already had down in on paper in pixelated form, whatever. Sometimes the most important quote unquote writing I do is not when I'm sitting at the computer. You're in Warrior too. I get it. Well, it happens to me. Yeah. Well, so it happens. Mm. I was in a headstand in a <laughs> yoga class. <Show> off. <laughs> I know. And I don't know how I thought of it, but I was like thinking about they're not the rat pack and they're not the brat pack. They're the snap pack. And then I was like, okay, now now I have a story. This is about 
where it used to be about Hollywood groups that would, you know, go out and party and be, have their pictures taken by the paparazzi. Now it's these just wealthy um, young people with large social media followings who sort of do the same but document it on their own and their own antics and the media attention that they themselves can bring to it is really the main draw for them. You wrote an article recently that your daughter used PowerPoint to try to convince you to buy her a telephone. She did. And and in the story, you then go out and find other examples. You, you, I think you got on Twitter and you searched for all these people. And we realized this is, this is not just a New York City thing. It's a thing that's happening all over the place. You think about how much business is done on PowerPoint these days. Mm-hmm. And so kids see their parents doing this and they want to emulate that. So I'm interested to, to know sort of as I think about a story like that, what does that say about where our society is going and, and, and in, in terms of technology and our relationship with it? Well, I, I just love that story so much. That is one story that I felt like didn't take off as much as it should have. And we've... we've That's okay. We'll fix that today. Okay. All right. Good. Um, so my daughter um, said she wanted to have a meeting. So we sit down in the kitchen and she said, you know, don't interrupt and just watch. And she puts this thing on the computer and it's this PowerPoint presentation of all the reasons why she should get a telephone. And it's got text that like goes in the honeycomb swirl and wow. dashes all off. the animation. Yeah, all what, the- <laughs> was it, now, was there an appropriate business like font chosen or was it something a little more whimsical? It was, you know, it was it was pretty business like for yeah. um, I think she was nine at the time. She's 10 now. But but, yeah, amazing. So I was just blown away by this, completely blown away by it. But they use PowerPoint in school. So that that is it's a tool that they're sort of familiar with. So okay, so she does this PowerPoint presentation. I can't stop thinking about it. I'm like, this has to be a story. So you must have been I would be proud if if, if I if that were my daughter. We were very proud. We were totally blown away. It was it was impressive. It was very, very impressive. And so then um, my son had a friend over. And I said, is this a thing? And again, because you can't do I mean, not only am I not employed to write stories about my daughter, I'm really not employed to write stories about what one person is doing. You know, for feature journalism, it really needs to connect to something larger going on in the culture or with a larger group of people at the very least. So um, so my son and his friend said, oh, yeah, you know, this is what people do. And this little girl who was over said that she had done a PowerPoint to try to convince her parents to get a dog. And I said, why did you think to do that? And she said she Googled how to convince your parents how to let you get a dog. Wow. And something so and a YouTube video came up telling you to make a PowerPoint presentation. So I was like, all right, I'm in. This is this is happening. Um, but to your point also, for a story like this, you really want to show it's not just New York kids. Because it's so easy to be like, oh, God, of course, on the Upper West Side, they're – Making PowerPoint presentations. In Brooklyn, by the way, they would make a ceramic bowl. <laughs> <laughs> they would. They would. Um, so so I, go- so I went on Twitter and I just started doing searches and I found a lot of evidence showing that kids all over the country were doing this. And, and I put a lot of attention to trying to find like a, a wide uh, geography um, to have represented in the piece. And I have a kid from Kentucky and a kid from 
Texas. That's just sort of the way to find people, and then you have to actually speak to them. And when it's children, you have to go. I go. I was reaching out to these kids and saying, I'd like to write about your PowerPoint presentation, but could you first put me in touch with your parents? Right. So got in touch with the parents, made my pitch to them, interviewed them, got the PowerPoints themselves, and interviewed the kids. I think it's so interesting that, like, kids kids always want to sort of do the adult thing. And now that means, you know, they want to have a meeting. They feel like having a meeting is the way to really be heard, which they they might be right. A lot of the kids I spoke to, my daughter including, said that the reason they, they feel like a PowerPoint is a way to not have their parents interrupt them and just say no without That's sort of hearing them out. Wow. I thought so too. And also just that it's another way that we're using technology to manage a relationship. We have like Tinder and at work you've got Slack and there's all these different tools that make it so that we either can depersonalize personal relationships or help them in one way or another and that somehow PowerPoint um, is something that's being embraced by kids. So I just loved that story. As I think about that story, what's what's particularly interesting is that it came out of, you know, the Twitter was such a big part of this. And as Mm -hmm. we think of, I think there's this stereotype now and it's for example if anybody watched House of Cards that the character left uh, I think the quote unquote Washington Post to work for something called like Slugline uh-huh. which is you know their whole thing was like we don't do research on stories we just publish anything you know right away on Twitter because we don't care if there's and and journalism is evolving and social media is a big part of journalism mm-hmm. and you you know you're on Twitter all the time and you I'm sure using all kinds of digital tools like how can as you think about that, the, the role of, of social media within the things that you cover or within the business that you are you know, in as a journalist, where is it all going and is it healthy? Is it unhealthy? You know, how should we think about that intersection? I, I you see the sigh there because yeah, we're like, oh, it's very destructive in many ways. I mean, there's there's no question about it. Um, but for a journalist, it's amazing because if you think about Um, If you think about, I mean, Twitter for a lot of people, particularly Twitter, is a place where you have a thought that you just think is so brilliant or funny or great that it must be shared. The world must know. (laughs) It lets you into people's sort of little thoughts. And and little thoughts can matter a lot in journalism, sometimes more than the big thoughts. It's obviously terrible for our attention span. Terrible. Well, I'm sorry. I was on Twitter. Yeah. I, I missed that. What were you saying? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's terrible for, I mean, it's terrible for a whole host of things. And I think it's obviously, you know, amplifying horrible rhetoric also, you know, separate from the fact that we can't read a book anymore. It's, mm. there's really um, dangerous things that are that are taking root it's i i think the disruption of media is very very important and the democratization of media is very very important but but the undermining in the trust of journalism as a talking point for our nation's leaders i think is very very dangerous to our democracy. So you have started a project um, called The Newsroom, and mm-hmm. I'd love to just you know tell people about what your goals were with the project, what you did, and what you learned. Well, so the, the background is I have been leading a current events class, essentially, discussion group for mm-hmm. about nine years. And it started because a woman came to me and said, instead of having a book club, I want to have a news club, a current mm-hmm. events club. Uh, and 
And do you know anybody who can lead it for me? And I thought I should try to do this. So at the time I worked for the Wall Street Journal, I got permission from my editor to do it. And I it almost, you know, I almost thought it was silly at first. I was like, oh, my God, you know, why don't you just read the paper? <laughs> you know, um, and it really was I was so wrong. Um, and I'm so I'm so glad I sort of quickly um, put my, you know, obnoxious attitude to the side because what resulted is just these really incredible conversations. And it became very valuable to me as a journalist, both to see what in this group, this was a group of women, to see what their interests and concerns were, but also to see that you know, what news really is, isn't this like second to second thing. And and that's the thing about Twitter. We're all trying to get these clicks. And so it just becomes this sort of like snarky, you know, one liner culture that actually only moves us further away from what what actually matters. So when the election of 2018 was coming up, I felt like this I'm doing this really valuable thing and I'm doing it for a very small group of people. And um I decided I wanted to find a way to open it up and see what would happen at a time that was just incredibly divisive. I mean, broadly, we're in a very divisive moment, but the couple months before the midterm election were just so, everything felt so incendiary and weighted and heated and angry. Um, so I took I took some time off from the New York Times and I did, I organized seven newsroom sessions. And so I put out invitation. I just put out email invitations and I didn't think much about who I was inviting. It was just like, I'm going to send out a first round and see what happens. And I just was overwhelmed with interest. One of the sessions I did was for um, tweenagers, sort of kids um, who were like 13 and 14. That was really amazing too. But so brought these groups together and for every, each of these sessions, I tried sort of a different format and, um, and you know, we talked all about, in all of them, we talked for some amount of time about the news of the day. Um, and that, but what I was finding in the beginning is it was so divisive mm-hmm. that, um, and really in New York City, it, it turned, there was one Everybody session. Everybody agree with each other? There was one <laughs> session where I was like, oh my God, I'm holding like a rally for the Democratic Party here. I felt so <laughs> uncomfortable about it, first of all, as a journalist, and just like, this is not what I want. Yeah. In fact, this is the opposite That's what of happens what I when want. you live in New York. You don't get a different view. It's very, it, and I didn't put, because I, I, because I thought I was going to have to work really hard to fill the room, I didn't put thought into sort of the first batch of emails, and those kind of spread. People forwarded them. And all of a sudden, it was it was a it was a fairly homogenous uh, group. So, so then I started changing the format where I would do you know we'll talk about the news of the day. Um, we did I did a couple sort of segments within sessions where we talked about how would a new how would a historical news story be covered now. So we talked about the Monica Lewinsky um, story and sort of in the age of social media and me too, how that might've been different. I did one session that was all about Watergate and just like, what do you think you know about Watergate? Cause you've probably forgotten a lot. Let's just sort of talk about mm-hmm. what, so I, I like, I made slides speaking of a PowerPoint. Um, I made slides and went through, you know, there were these burglars and they got caught and it was revealed that some of their money had come, you know, just sort of details I had forgotten. And then, and then I brought in um, 
the brilliant guy, Leon Nafok, who had done the Slow Burn podcast. Which is an amazing podcast. Amazing. I love that. I love it. I wish I could listen to it again. We love you, Leon. Yeah. Um, and, And then we talked about how Watergate connects to the moment that we're in now or that we were in. So that was fabulous. So all in all, it was an incredible experience. What I learned is that, you know, there's a real thirst for this. I learned that diversity in a room is very, very important for all sorts of reasons. That was a a very big lesson. And that, you know, people tend to be more, my hypothesis was right, which is people tend to be more civic minded, more respectful, um, more willing to listen and consider other people's opinions and ways of life when they're sitting in a room looking at them and not interacting with them with it like a a handle looked at on a screen you know with an avatar and that's where the depersonalization just allows us to be our worst selves and there were a lot of conversations that ultimately I think left people feeling hopeful that you know maybe we could maybe we could get somewhere. So I attended one of these. Uh, We talked about Monica Lewinsky and I believe Watergate, if I'm correct. And my takeaway was was similar. I think for me, number one is uh, somebody who oftentimes talks the most in a meeting. Listeners, you know what I'm talking about. Um, (laughs) I, because it was moderated, I had to listen more than I had to talk. And it was helpful to me because then I took the time to listen to other people. Mm -hmm. That was number one. Uh, Number two was, it was a different group of people. I didn't know anybody in the room. So there was some diversity. But you're right. Everybody, uh, a lot of people came out in the same space. And I thought to myself at the end, it was a good takeaway. You know, if you're putting together a focus group or you want advice on anything in, in, in in your life or in your business, and I think a lot about this, it's like, and we had people on the show like Shan Ma, the CEO of Zola, her um, her management team is incredibly diverse because she is very afraid of groupthink. I think that just makes the conversation richer because, as you as you said, like I think the reason that people were so hungry to come to your event was that because they're doing this online all day and they're actually looking for something in real life mm-hmm. where they can have these conversations. But at the same time, you know, nobody does that. And usually, when they do, it's they're over the Thanksgiving dinner table when you're fighting with Uncle Fred about something and so it's it doesn't end up well yeah i i think so too it was it was very special it it really was and um it's something i'd like to continue doing and um i think it's i think it's really important it's hard to do when you are when you're a journalist working for a news organization it's you can't really have side hustles you can't take money from other people it it corrupts you it's i mean it's not ethical um so so yes, it would be it would be something I would love to do for real um, if and when I'm not at the New York Times, um, where I'm very happy to be right now. Of so course. for now, I'm just right now. You're a ten percent social entrepreneur. That means yes. how to change the world without going broke. Yes. So Katie, I think you know as I talked to you today and. I imagine that people are thinking like this woman does it all. She gets up at three in the morning. She does yoga. She writes articles about all these crazy things. Um, she has, uh, you know, an interesting, cool project on the side. A lot of things going on there. So for people who, you know, are listening and thinking, wow, how does she do this? This is the show about um, finding the power to choose what you actually want in business and life and having the courage to miss out on the rest, which I imagine you're doing all the time. So what's your advice? I don't want to give advice because I'm not sure that I've completely cracked the code, but I'll tell you a couple a couple things that I think about, which is that 
Um, I can be good at two things at a time. I can be a good mother and a good journalist at the same time, but then I'm not exercising much. So hopefully I'm, a, I'm an okay mother all the time. I keep them, I keep them you know, fed and, and alive. But I, I tend to sort of shuffle the thing that, that is falling by the wayside. I'm a big believer and I'm good at two things at a time. And I just when, when, some, when I start to drop a ball, I shift what the two things are. And then the other thing is I just want to have a full life. Um, my my mom died relatively young, and one of the things that she said to me when um, she was dying, we didn't have a lot of heavy conversations because she just didn't want to face it, but she said, um, promise me that you'll live a full life. And so when I have moments where it just feels too much and I'm pulling my hair out, I try to think this is what it means to have a full life. And it feel if if that thing feels like it's not, no, it's not. This is what it feels like to be overwhelmed and not present anywhere. Then that's an important thing for me to take stock of and make a decision on. But otherwise, I try to look at it like this is, this is what it means to have a full life. And um, I'm energized by it. I will carry that wisdom of your mother with me okay, going good. forward. Yeah. Um, so if people want to follow you, keep up with you, where can they find you? Well, they should subscribe to the New York Times. Uh, and my byline is Catherine Rossman. And they'll see me a lot, though not as much as I should be. And on Twitter, I'm at Katie Rossman, K-A-T-I-E-R-O-S-M-A-N. And I'm the same on Instagram. And I can tell you the Twitter it's full of nuggets of value. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for stopping by, Katie Rossman, and best of luck. Thank you for having me. FOMO. And now it's time for the FOMO moment of the show, which is the time when I talk about FOMO and its role in pop culture or tell you about something that's giving me FOMO. On a recent episode, I interviewed Luke Holden, who started Luke's Lobster while he was working full-time in finance. Since that episode went live, I've heard from a bunch of listeners who were absolutely inspired by Luke's story and would like to follow in his footsteps by launching a business on the side while keeping their day jobs. If you're interested in learning how to be a part-time entrepreneur, you have come to the right place. I wrote a whole book on the topic. It's called The 10% Entrepreneur, Live Your Startup Dream Without Quitting Your Day Job. It's published by Penguin Portfolio, and you can find it on Amazon. You can also check out patrickmcginnis.com slash buildyour10, where you'll find all kinds of free resources for part-time entrepreneurs, including a free workbook. Entrepreneurship doesn't have to be an all-or-nothing proposition, so check it out and get started today. FOMO. If you have an idea for the FOMO moment of the show, or if you have a question or comment, reach out to me at letsconnect@patrickmcginnis.com or send me a tweet at pjmcginnis. Also, you can take the official FOMO Sapiens diagnostic at patrickmcginnis.com slash FOMO-quiz and find out if you're a FOMO Sapiens. FOMO Sapiens is part of the HBR Presents Network. The show is produced by AW360 and recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at patrickmcginnis.com. You can also take the official FOMO diagnostic at patrickmcginnis.com slash FOMO-quiz to find out if you're a FOMO sapiens. FOMO.